I'm Alex Mito. And I'm James Milley. And this is The Artist Business Plan, your favorite weekly business podcast for artist entrepreneurs, hosted by Superfine Art Fair. What's going on, business artists? You are listening to The Artist Business Plan, which means that you are certifiably awesome. As you know, if you've been listening to us for a while, and also if you're new, I'm Alex Mito. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Superfine Art Fair. Superfine, we're the most widespread art fair for artists in the U.S. We have shows in Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Miami, Washington, D.C., and New York. And we're also one of the top resources for all things art, artists, and of course, marketing and selling your art. Today, we've got Penny Lane Shen here with us on the mic. Penny Lane is going to share an awesome masterclass with you today on how to reach de- developmental goals in your art career. I don't know about you, but I am super excited to hear what she has to say about reaching our goals. But first, I've got an amazing offer here just for you ABP listeners. Artists, have you ever felt anxious, alone, and not sure about the next move for your career? Good news, those days are over. For nearly six years, we've taken thousands of hours to develop the best art fair model for artists out there. Superfine art fairs have helped hundreds of artists just like you take control of their careers, build relationships with collectors, and create the art income and freedom that you deserve. For a limited time, we are offering you the chance to not only get a great discount on your booth, but also appear on this very podcast as a special guest, reaching thousands of artists, art influencers, collectors, and arts professionals every day. To find out how you can take advantage of this incredible opportunity, just visit www.superfine.world offer to learn more. We can't wait to welcome you to the Superfine community and start helping you sell more art today. All right, so we are back here with Penny Lane Shen, and we're ready to change the way that you think about your art career. Penny Lane Shen is an artist, consultant, a curator, and an educator. She holds a master's degree in visual culture theory from NYU and has lectured in various forums throughout North America and the UK. For well over a decade, Penny Lane has worked in the gallery industry, including the longest standing commercial gallery in Canada. Among a few of her past curation and education projects are the NYC Crit Club, the Vancouver General Hospital Art Collection, and the Vancouver Mural Festival. Since 2006, her company Dazed and Confucius, I love the name by the way, sees over 1,000 artists one-on-one each year in addition to hosting professional development seminars for artists worldwide. While Penny Lane's company caters to artists' needs such as marketing and career support, what sets them apart from other artist consultants is in their core philosophy. Dazed and Confucius prioritizes strong concept and identity building and attention to the quality artwork itself first and foremost. Welcome to the Artist Business Plan, Penny Lane. Thanks so much, Alex. Happy to be here. And that is, what is your earliest memory of art? I like to think about um, this one particular experience as a teenager that I had, where I was looking through a magazine. I can't even remember what it was, but it was clearly some sort of art magazine that came across my life and across my eyes uh, when I was maybe 17 years old and in high school. And I was already into the arts then, but there was a picture of Jean Antoni, and she's an American performance artist, sculptor, multidisciplinary. Uh, I didn't know that at the time. I just saw a picture of her doing a piece where she's painting the gallery floor with her hair dipped in black paint and covering the gallery floor with it. 
it was just so radical and so badass to me at that time. And I was like, what is going on? Like, this can be art, come on. And so I knew at that point that not only did I, you know, was I really interested in in this type of artwork, you know, the non-representational, up until this point, you know, I'd been, I just assumed art was like Bob Ross style, which I still really like, by the way, <laughs> but, you know, that type of artwork. And then, you know, I, I saw this and it blew my young mind. And I started an art bucket list, which I talk about sometimes in other um, seminars and podcasts, where I sort of made this mental list that then became a physical list of things I wanted to see before I died, artworks basically. And her work was one of the one of the first pieces on that list, if not the first piece on that list. And I did eventually see one of her works, Lick and Lather, which is one of my favorite works of hers, in San Francisco probably a decade later or more. But yeah, that's my earliest, one of my earliest memories of art, beginning that art bucket list. Your company, Dazed and Confucius, hosts professional development seminars for artists worldwide. If I'm an artist and I attend one of your seminars, give me the top three big takeaways that I'm going to leave with. Like, What are those three things that I'm, I maybe I didn't know when I walked in the door and I know after I leave? For sure. Yeah. I, we have quite a lot of different seminars and they are really, um, I've developed them over time based on very specific things. So some of them are about art writing and that one's called like how it sounds. So it's all about everything to do with professional art writing for the working artist. And then there's another one called how it looks and it's all about presentation, which is everything from framing to hanging the work, uh, everything to do with the way your art looks. And then we have another one called Finding Your Visual Voice, which is about building a cohesive, recognizable body of work and sort of some tips and steps on how to do that. It would depend, Alex, on, I guess, the, the seminar that you came to. But my hope is that one of the takeaways would be that this all takes a good amount of time and investment in yourself and organization, of course, as well as so much about what we do is is surround is art adjacent so it's not just the making of the work itself but the marketing the promotion the branding the the crunching of the numbers the finding of the best materials and techniques and getting critique on our work so all the things that are art adjacent is something that i would hope that audiences kind of come leave with and understand that it is totally possible to do these things by yourself I love that. That's a good takeaway. It is totally possible to do these things by myself, right? That This is the perfect podcast because we're talking about all the things that are art adjacent. Like We're not really teaching artists how to make their work so much as we are talking about all these other nuts and bolts that come along with committing to an art practice and art career. So w- let's talk about long-term and short-term goal setting. Why are both long-term and short-term goal-setting sessions vital for an artist's long-term success? Sure. Yeah. This is one of the questions I actually have on um, our pre-consult form, which is this form that goes out to everybody that we see one-on-one. There are very specific catered questions (laughs) that kind of reveal a lot about the artist I'm about to meet with uh, when I read that form. And this is one of those questions. And it just gives me an idea of how realistic an artist's goals are, it's important to think long-term, but I do think that that long-term goal tends to be muddied with the short-term goal. What I find that is that most artists answer uh, when I say, oh, what are your goals? They'll say to become a rich and famous artist, to make 150K a year and to sell upwards of 50 paintings and 
Like it's always something along those lines and to have gallery representation in, in international galleries. And that's fine and good. And I think those are great goals, but we also need to figure out what we can achieve and what those short-term goals can be. Another word that I see thrown around a lot in uh, pre-consult forms are, is the word leveling up. So artists will often write, I'd like to level up or I'd like to go to that next step. I'd like to take it to the next step. And again, I, I understand the feeling that they're feeling and what they're going for. However, I don't know. They often know what leveling up looks like and whether they'll even be able to recognize it when it's happened. That is problematic. So identifying those short-term goals is a way that we can understand whether or not we have leveled up. Otherwise, there will always be this sort of chasing the next, the next, the next thing. But we need to find a way to also mark those things while they're happening. Right. And I think that's so important having those like intermediary goals between these like big, big picture things that maybe you do want, which are like perfectly well and good to want, but like having something that you can, that that you are more likely to reach in the middle where you can actually feel like you are leveling up and actually that be true too. I agree. That's so, so important. And something we see a lot with artists who maybe come into our fairs and they're like, okay, look, my investment here is like, whatever, it's three or $4,000 total. I want to make like four times what I invest. It's like, okay, that's really cool. You might make that over three months, six months, a year, but it's important that you look at the metrics of like, you know, how many people did I meet? How many of them turned into collectors? You know, how many new collectors that I walk away with. These are all really important metrics as well. Not just like, did I meet this larger goal? Because you, you don't want to disappoint yourself. Totally. And I call it bankable time. And so there's also bankable goals. So I think that with a lot of the artists that we encounter, they feel a lot of guilt. And that guilt comes from not properly tracking their accomplishments. And that guilt comes from probably feeling like they're not making enough work or spending enough time in the studio actually producing sellable work. Of course, we know that that's, that can't be the case all the time. Um, we need to be doing other kinds of things, those art-adjacent things that we were talking about. That's, of course, bankable time. But we also need to be inspired, right? We need to be going to see shows and listening to podcasts, of course, and watching films and absorbing the things that inspire us and make our work better. And all of that is bankable time. And there is no, you know, it, it isn't really a clock in clock out kind of thing for an artist punch in, punch out. It, it is all bankable time if you see it that way. And I, I find that that tends to alleviate some of the guilt associated with um, either not meeting like very specific bottom line sales goals or meeting very specific hours clocked in the studio goals. I love that concept of bankable time, right? And it's not just what you, you know, it's not just the time you spend like out making money. It's also the time you spend taking in information, podcasts, looking at other shows. I think it's a really cool way of thinking about your bankable time as an artist. You got it. Yeah. Research, basically, I'd consider it. And research I do find to be like tragically kind of missing oftentimes in an artist's practice. Yeah. And it's so important to actually see you know, from a marketing standpoint, but also from just a like, you know, inputs into your own creative space thing. It's so vital. Yeah. Cool. So moving to our next question, what are some of the questions you ask artists in your consultation sessions to help them better realize their development goals? 
So this this really varies based on what their goals are. Um, generally, if their goal is to self-sell, as in they plan to be the main salesperson behind their work, and that is the goal. We spend a lot of time, I will ask, you know, who is your audience and who are your, for lack of a better word, customer avatars, and whether or not you've made those yet and built those. And oftentimes artists haven't, or maybe they don't know who their audience is. And then that requires a series of a bunch of other questions, like who's purchased your work in the last three years? What avenue have they purchased it through? Um, Is your work better seen in person or can it be sold digitally? Like all these kinds of questions around self-selling and developing who your audience is and figuring that out. And then we can properly market to that specific person. Of course, if you're marketing to everyone, you're marketing to no one. So really identifying those target members of your, of your clientele, I think is really important. And another question that we ask, and this is much more on the, the flip side, which is the art making side, the conceptual side is, you know, I ask, what are the meat and potatoes behind your work? So what, what is the stuff? What's the point? Basically, what are the guts behind the work? Why are you doing it? What message do you have? And is it worth hearing that message? And these are much harder questions that cannot be answered usually very simply, but they take time. They take some real thought. And that's a lot of of what we do at Days and Confucius, which I think is perhaps a little bit different than purely the business coaching kind of stuff. And it's really targeting, is is this the message you want to get across and are you doing it the best way? I love that answer. And you brought up two of my favorite things in business, which are when you're marketing to everyone, you're marketing to no one, which I say every single day, and it's so important. And then customer avatars, which I don't think a lot of artists know about, but it's such an important thing to know who you're marketing to. It kind of going with that statement, like if you're marketing to everyone, you're marketing to no one. But thinking about who your buyers are and asking yourself those questions, like who have my buyers been? who has been interested in my work and like, you know, what does my buyer look like, walk like, act like, talk like, live, where do they live? I mean, these are all really, really important questions. I think that's such a cool concept to bring up and there's so much more we could dive into with that. We're going to come right back and Penny Lane is going to tell you more of what you want to know about building a cohesive visual voice and much more. But first, a message from our sponsors. New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and yes, Miami. These are just a few of the places where you and your art can meet your next collector when you take the next step and exhibit with us at Superfine Art Fairs. For nearly six years, we've taken thousands of hours to develop the best art fair model for artists out there. Superfine Fairs have helped hundreds of artists just like you take control of their careers, build relationships with collectors, and create the art income and freedom that you deserve. For a limited time, we're offering you the chance to not only get a great discount on your booth, but also appear on this very podcast as a special guest, reaching thousands of artists, art influencers, collectors, and arts professionals every day. To find out how you can take advantage of this incredible opportunity, just visit www.superfine.world offer to learn more. Don't miss the chance to be a part of the top business artist community in the world. And we are back with Penny Lane Shen. So Penny Lane, what are three ways an artist can find their visual voice? So in our visual voice seminar, we have just a handful of tips. I think five tips from the 12 that we are kind of our go-tos depending on what kind of work an artist does. One of them is creating what I call a starting lineup. And that is like the first string of 
colors that you tend to use if you're an artist that uses color to continue using that first string of colors. This is like a sports reference uh, from, I think, basketball. So you might send out your first string and then you'll have your second string and then your third string. So the first lineup is the, are the colors that you use most frequently and you continue to use those throughout a series or perhaps more. The second is the second, the ones that you use second most often appear second most often in your work. And usually that number is quite a bit lower. And then you have your third string, which are like accent colors that also come up. And this is just for artists that feel like they're kind of all over the place. It's one easy way to begin a cohesive palette that starts to become recognizable, especially if you're using unique colors, which of course you should be, and mixing your own colors and using them in future bodies of work. Another way an artist can create their visual voice is to do studies. I talk about this quite a bit in our business, but doing studies and sketches and several studies before you create a final piece really helps develop that visual voice and identity because there's planning involved. And I know that tends to squash like an artist's feeling like they're in the moment or feeling like they're doing something spontaneous, but Really, that's what the word study means. It's to study something before you actually do it. So to lay out the composition, to lay out the texture, to figure out the palette, to figure out everything, you would do a study first and again and again and again. And I usually think that there are five phases to a study before creating the final piece. Yeah, and that may seem like overkill, but I really believe that it works. And then a third way is to, I think, create a list of artists. So this is part of our pre-consult form as well, which is um, who are who are some artists that you like? Who are some artists that you admire? And if an if I find that a client can't can't fill this out at all, as in there aren't any artists that they admire, I find that to be, you know, that that tells me something. Also in brackets it says living and working. So you can't list Picasso. You have to list artists that are living and working. So who are some artists that you like whose work looks like yours? And then who are some artists that you like whose work does not look like yours? And I find those, those answers really revealing. And sometimes it forces the artist to have to, the client to have to look that up and dive a little bit deeper. But, you know, if your work, if you're doing representational watercolor and you like a lot of representational watercolor artists, great. That makes sense. But who else, who is doing abstract mark making and who is doing black and white photography that you like? And how about somebody who's doing impressionistic figurative work? How about somebody who's doing video and sound? Is there anybody you like there? And then the question becomes, how can we bridge that gap in your own work? So is your work closer to like, how can we move it maybe one notch or two notches closer to the work that you like that doesn't look like your work, if that makes sense? I, I love that approach of looking at living, working artists who you admire, whose work looks like yours, and also some whose work doesn't look at all like yours. I think that's a really cool way of not negatively comparing in any way, but of, of like seeing what others are doing that's successful, both in the way they're creating work and the way they're marketing it, that you might be able to bring into your practice as well. So I think that's a really, really cool approach. Yeah. What I find also is that some... Times artists will write down different work that they admire or like and follow, and it doesn't look anything like their work. So what does it mean when the work that you like doesn't look anything like the work that you're making? Yeah, those 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 are some of the ways that I 
you know, we've been able to sort of cater each consultation to a specific artist by asking them those questions and trying to figure out if we can develop a stronger visual voice. Shifting gears a little bit over to the digital realm, what do gallerists and collectors look for in an artist's website? Sure. Yeah, we've built a lot of websites for artists. It's one of the services that we offer. Again, we we build them with the avatar in mind. So until we can kind of figure out who the avatar is, we can't necessarily build the best website for them. However, there are definitely certain things that I think every website needs. Um, One is what I call visual real estate. So that imagery should take up the majority of the website as opposed to negative space or text, for example, or embellishments like like decor kind of boxes and design elements like that. Really, the artwork, the imagery needs to be first and foremost, and it needs to take up visual real estate. That first, it is a visual site. Another tip is that the website is a showroom, not an inventory space. So it shouldn't look like a warehouse inventory of everything you've ever done. It should look like a showroom. So basically the best ofs, the best things. So, And I really don't need to see as a, you know, when working in galleries or as a collector, I really don't need to see everything you've ever done. I just want to see the best things. And then work in situ, whatever that may mean. So as a gallery, I'd love to see past exhibits or exhibitions anytime your work has ever been shown or hung at, for example, at an art fair. Of course, it makes just such a huge difference to see the work in situ than with a full crop or um, in the studio right? And of course, if you're self-selling and you're selling to people generally in the home, then we want to see it in the home. If you're selling to corporate, then we want to see it in a lobby or office space or in hospitality. Basically, I say like show the work where it should go. Uh, Make it easy for people to, if you're self-selling, make it easy for people to collect. So whatever that may mean, if you're selling, find an easy way for people to purchase or collect, acquire the work. It may seem counterintuitive because you may be going for galleries at the same time, in which case you're not wrong. It does muddy the waters when you're listing prices and self-selling while you're also going for gallery. Those two things kind of oppose each other in terms of functionality and aesthetics in a website. And that's just something that we have to talk out and decide what takes priority. But if you are selling and that is your priority, make it easy. I love that. And I couldn't agree more. Like, as a collector, if I'm on your website and you're selling your work, like I don't want to fill out a contact form. I don't want to really start a conversation. I want to be able to purchase it. So having that available is so, so important. Like if I want to start a conversation, I would, I would like to find your social media and your Instagram and follow you over time. But like if I just want a piece, I want to be able to like buy it and have it sent to me. So that's really important. Yeah. So if you're if you're going that route, like it's really, really important to have that And something you said about show the work where it is meant to be shown, I might be paraphrasing a little bit there. If you're the type of artist where your work is large format, like, you know, it fits, you know, hotels, restaurants, and a good, a good sign that it does is that that's already happened to you organically. uh, It can be worth it to have a page on your website dedicated to those types of uh, offerings, like for hospitality, for hotels, things like that. But of course you want the visuals showing your work there or in offices, if that's what you're going for, or homes, if that's you know the, your, what your collector is buying the work for. So again, it all goes back to the customer avatars and figuring out who you're selling to. You got it. We create a lot of those in-situ shots, like we composite them. They're um, 
composite images, meaning that we will put them in the home. And often just because I think oftentimes artists feel like, well, I don't have access to that kind of space or home. Well, you don't have to, you can fake it, you know, <laughs> as long as it looks good. And, um, and that's really my only thing with that. I find that a lot of artists will use an app or some sort, and that's totally fine. But the rooms that they're cho- choosing are, is not their avatar. That is not their person. And it usually tends to look like a villain in a superhero movie's room. Like it looks like a lair. It's very cold and there's maybe like a chaise lounge in the, in the foreground. And it, nobody's home looks like that. It's just a little bit too, a little bit too stark. And if you do work that doesn't suit that aesthetic, like you're doing embroidery of something cool. And maybe your work is in a maximalist's home and not a minimalist home. I think our culture sort of rewards minimalism a little bit too much. That might not be your avatar. Like they're cooler than that. Yeah. Or they're more traditional or whatever it may be. So you also, in addition to showing the work in situ, you also have to show it in the right situ. I love that you mentioned maximalism because that's been my style for a very long time. That Yeah, the house I live in now is on the more minimal side, but it's still a maximal minimal. I believe culturally we're moving out of that minimalist moment into a more maximalist moment, kind of in the way that the Roaring Twenties came around after the Spanish flu. I think we're sort of really appreciating beauty and richness and things right now. So something to think about as you're developing your avatar that they might not be that person in that cold loft with that single Eames chair in the corner. They might be a person with a with a jungle print wallpaper, which I happen to have in my my movie screening room. I was like, it's not a TV room. I don't own a TV. So it's it's a it's a screen. But yeah, so I mean you might really want to think like, you know, flip through using an app is okay. Or or if you're working with someone like Penny Lane who can get a little more bespoke with it, that's great. But you know, flipping through an architectural digest or dwell just to kind of see what are homes looking like, what are people modeling their homes after, and where does your work fit in to that, you know, in terms of avatars and also the content, it's such a valuable exercise. So I, I basically, that's my long-winded way of saying I agree with you 100% on that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Alice. I think that's totally true as, a, as also a maximalist who has moved into a more minimal space that is not you know, I've adjusted in that way, but I like color. I like pattern. When I see a lot of artwork that I like um, in the superhero villains space, it disconnects me from it. I, I no longer can see it in my own space. And I've collected a lot of artwork through art fairs and markets and definitely Instagram online. And of course in galleries, but from the nature of, of my life, a lot of them happen to be like, I have a lot of small to medium works as opposed to, let's say, five very large works. And I still love those small pieces. So when I see an artist's work, it has to be able to integrate into my already plentiful collection in some way. I often urge artists to show their work in situ with other artists' work, like with their own collection. And I want to see photography with painting and contemporary work with traditional work, realism with deep abstraction, like you're educating an audience on how to hang your work as well. And that means hanging it with other people's work. 
I love that artists who are listening right now, this answer is as good as gold. So definitely as you're figuring out your website and the in-situ images you want to use, this is maybe advice you're not hearing everywhere, but it really, really does matter showing your work. And at the same time, you're educating your potential buyers on how to hang and how to show and display artwork in their homes. I'm looking around my house and that's how I have it hung. So I think it's really, really, really good advice. And if I can take that one step further, like if you're taking um, some in-situ shots of your own work along with others, that generally means you own other people's work. So if I can just just drop one more piece of encouragement, it is to buy other artists' work as an artist. If you expect people to buy your work, buy other artists' work. I love that. We've we've been saying that for years at Superfine and we've seen it happen so many times, but it's really, you know, buying into this ecosystem that you're trying to be a part of is so important as an artist. It's not like a mandate, but I mean, obviously be fiscally responsible, but like supporting other artists with your dollars is a great way to really support other artists and then feel that support come back to you. And I, I could not agree with you more. Penny Lane, this has been an incredible conversation. I could probably go on for another half hour or hour, but we're coming to an end here. So let's bring it home for our listeners out there. Is there a call to action that you want to share with them where they can maybe work with Days and Confucius in the future? Um, I encourage everybody just to pop on our Instagram. It's dazed.and.confucius and or on our website, which is dazedandconfucius.com. You can find um, a bunch of different things that we offer there, like our services in... Um, ghost writing and grant writing, editing, as well as website development, et cetera. But our most popular service is our consultations, our one-on-one personal consultations and our small group critiques. Uh, If you're interested in booking one of those, please drop us a line on Instagram or on our website. So guys, that's going to be Dazed and Confucius on Instagram, dazed.and.confucius. It'll be in the show notes. You can also visit dazedandconfucius.com. To all of you business artists out there, Penny Lane has been here with us today sharing her amazing perspective with you all. You're definitely, definitely going to want to go back and take notes. I know I do. You can listen to this and all of our past podcasts on our website at www.superfine.world. And remember that on Instagram, we are Superfine Art Fair. No dots, just Superfine Art Fair. We always appreciate it anytime you can share the artist business plan whenever you're listening to us. Uh, hashtag ABP or hashtag the artist business plan. Uh, we always appreciate that. And if you tag Superfine Art Fair, we will restore you. And another thing that we really love is when you take just a moment of your time to go on Apple Podcasts and write us a quick review or give us a star rating. Apple Podcasts is where almost 10,000 of you listen in every week, every sorry, every month. It's just really amazing. It helps other artists like you find Superfine and the Artist Business Plan. And as always, I would like to wrap up the class by sharing a quick quote with you all. And that quote is, Drawing is giving a performance. An artist is an actor who is not limited by the body, only by his or her ability and perhaps experience. And that is Mark Davis. Penny Lane, it has been such a pleasure having you with us today. Thank you for joining us and sharing your perspective with our listeners. Oh, thank you so much for having me. The pleasure is all mine and everybody else. Have an awesome rest of your day. Remember to stay on top of your artist business plan. Get out there and make it happen. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Artist Business Plan, a weekly business podcast for artist entrepreneurs brought to you by Superfine Art Fair. Hosted by Superfine CEO Alex Mito and co-founder slash professional artist James Milley, join us and leaders in the art, marketing, and business arenas each week for tips, tricks, and value bombs designed to help you thrive and sell more art. 
For more information on applying to Superfine Art Fair, as well as recordings of this and all of our past podcasts, just visit www.superfine.world. We love to hear what you have to say, so just follow us on Instagram at Superfine Art Fair and shoot us a message to let us know you're listening. Looking for a more personal connection or want to exhibit at an upcoming fair? Just shoot us an email at artistsmakingmoney at superfine.world and we'll get right back to you. That's artistsmakingmoney at superfine.world.